was going about my bar class and in a side plank and my right leg just started to feel really strange, a bit numb, really faint pins and needles, a little bit like, you know, when you've been sitting on your heels or something and your leg kind of goes to sleep, but the tingling seemed quite far away. So it bothered me enough to get out of the position and I just sat there on the floor. My next thought was, this is what a major life event feels like. My father had actually again like one of those weird coincidences had had a, a brain injury like a hematoma on his brain on the left side about 10 years ago so about six years before this and i knew some of his symptoms and he had problems with memory and language so i sat there testing myself all the while like the class is still going on around me and i just look like i've got a muscle cramp they put me on a drip to get the blood pressure down i refer to it as the goldilocks <laughs> sort of bleed they said it's not large it's not small and it was right on the motor centre and they just put me onto the HCU, hyperacute care unit. And I was up there, they had to get a bed ready for me and really that's all they did was they were just monitoring it. I guess they realised it had stopped bleeding further because my symptoms stopped developing. So it got as far as my shoulder. Never, ever, 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 ever give up <laughs> and never stop trying and pushing because it, it's really challenging when your recovery plateaus but it never plateaus forever. Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear, and this is Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. High blood pressure brings a significant risk of a stroke. 50% of ischemic strokes are caused by it, and it also increases the chance of suffering a bleed on the brain. To combat high blood pressure, there are a few lifestyle changes you can make, cutting down on caffeine, alcohol and smoking, increasing your daily exercise level and eating a more balanced diet can all have a positive impact on blood pressure. In this episode, we hear from Vanessa Muir, originally from Australia, now living in London, who suffered a stroke at the age of 45. Before the stroke, I was pretty active, very sociable, worked a lot, travelled a lot. I was quite good at pushing myself and my body a little bit, you know, trying to fit as much in as possible. But as you can tell, I'm, I'm Australian, so definitely a, lot, a love of travelling. So I would work quite hard because I'm a contractor and then I would take some time off and go travelling. And I never thought twice about taking off on my own to go to various places in Africa or South America or Asia and hiking and trekking and cycling holidays and things like that. I used to cycle to and from work around London as well. Yeah, really quite active and never really thought twice about anything. <laughs> when you look back and you, you realise that somehow some strange things were fortuitous. So it's a Saturday morning and I always go off to bar classes. So bar is a type of fitness workout based on Pilates, ballet and bits of yoga. And that evening I was supposed to catch up with a couple of friends. Uh, one of my friends was renovating her house. Half her house was missing and another friend of ours had just been diagnosed with melanoma on her eye rim. So we were supposed to like get together and just we were going to stay the night because it was easier and have Thai food and, and watch the movies and everything. So I actually had packed an overnight bag. <laughs> so I turned up at my bar class in the morning with this little overnight bag and I was doing <laughs> I was doing two classes that day. First one was fine. And the second one, I was just tired. I'd had quite a bad migraine the day before and I was feeling better, but I was just a bit tired on this day. And um, I was going about my bar class and in a side plank and my right leg just started to feel really strange, a bit numb, really faint pins and needles, a little bit like, you know, when you've been sitting on your heels or something and your leg kind of goes to sleep, but the tingling seemed quite far away. So it 
bothered me enough to get out of the position and I just sat there on the floor. I was just rubbing my, my thigh and my, my, my calf, trying to sort of wake them up a bit. And then this is where time starts to get a little bit funky, but I started to realise that my brain was sending signals to my leg and my leg was not responding. So it wasn't bending, my foot wasn't moving. <laughs> my next thought was, this is what a major life event feels like. My father had actually, again, like one of those weird coincidences, had had a, a brain injury, like a hematoma on his brain on the left side about 10 years ago, so about six years before this. And I knew some of his symptoms and he had problems with memory and language. So I sat there testing myself all the while, like the class is still going on around me and I just look like I've got a muscle cramp to the teacher and like, okay, do I know where I am? Yes. Can I remember yesterday? Yes. Can I understand the teacher? Yes. And she came over and asked me if I was all right. And I said, oh, no, I've just got a problem with my leg. Anyway, she, she said, okay, just let me know if you need any help. And then I, you know, got momentarily distracted by the fact my leg suddenly looked like a sausage to me, which was one of those weird thoughts that, you know, pops into your head because it was kind of useless at that point. I got the instructor over and asked her to help me out of the room because I couldn't stand. So thankfully there were bars <laughs> on the side of the room and I was right next to one so I could grab it to help me get myself up and that point the whole leg my whole leg was sort of twisting in a bit like a corkscrew really and kind of uh, hopped out with her help and I sat down and she said do you want to just sit here for a while I said no I need an ambulance she said really and I went yep <laughs> and so then they put me into the personal training room on some massive bit of Pilates equipment <laughs> and I lay there and a paramedic because I was again really luckily not on my own because I live on my own not up in my loft doing something up a ladder or something crazy. I was in the middle of central London, right near Oxford Circus, and a paramedic was into the studio in about, within, I think it, was, it felt like about five minutes. He came and checked me out and called an ambulance, and my blood pressure was oh, something insane by that point, like 213 over 132. But he said, you know, that could be... Either it helped cause it or it was because of the event that was happening. And then um, the other two paramedics turned up and again, I think maybe 15, 20 minutes later, and then my arm was starting to misbehave and it was hitting my shoulder. And that's when the panic was sort of starting to set in because it was developing. But I still <laughs> couldn't say the word to myself, even though I knew when they were even calling the ambulance, the girl from the front desk, Jessie, came to ask me to smile and raise my arms above my head and do certain things. I'm like, I knew what she was testing me for, but my brain couldn't quite go to the word stroke yet. Then I had to get carried out in front of all of the Saturday morning exercises because we're in a basement up the stairs and into the ambulance. And I kept asking them, could it be anything else? <laughs> and they said, you could have damaged a disc because you're exercising but it's hard to think of anything else it could be. And I knew that, that was, it was true, that, you know, that they were right because I didn't have any pain and this sort of weird thing that was happening was completely painless. And I, I texted a friend who's a doctor and, you know, he was keeping him abreast and then, yeah, into the emergency room probably within 45 minutes of it happening. They put me through a CT scan and found a bleed on the brain. Although it was a serious stroke, Vanessa didn't require surgery. They put me on a drip to get the blood pressure down. I refer to it as the Goldilocks sort of bleed. They said it's not large, it's not small. And it was right on the motor centre. And they just put me onto the HCU, hyperacute care unit. And I was up there, they had to get a bed ready for me. And really that's all they did was they were just monitoring it. I guess they realised it had stopped 
bleeding further because my symptoms stopped developing. So it got as far as my shoulder, didn't knock out my hand, knocked out my arm, parts of my arm movement, but it didn't hit my face and it didn't hit speech. So my language was okay. There was a bit of a, a lag because, you know, your brain's in shock. But um, yeah, I think that what they realised was that the bleeding seemed to have stopped progressing. The drip seemed to be working. The blood pressure was dropping. And then it was just a waiting game, really. I had an MRI about a week or so later and another one a few months later. The predominant theory is it was hypertension. So my blood pressure was and this is, I lecture everybody about this now, <laughs> was always low. I was always perfect. You know, like never had a problem with it until I hit 40. And then it started to behave a bit like a roller coaster. So depending on the randomness of the time that a doctor would take it, it would either be fine or it would be a little bit high, but then it would come down again. And I was on medication for it, but I just switched to a different type of medication. And it turns out that wasn't controlling it. But that wasn't the sole reason. So they also found evidence of what they call small blood vessel disease. So some abnormalities in the blood vessels, probably as a result of the blood vessels trying to cope with the changes, the fluctuations in blood pressure. Apparently makes the walls thicker to withstand these fluctuations in pressure. And then, you know, then they can be prone to rupture. So that seemed to be what happened with me. I find it interesting they don't generally tell you anything except for the next step. So I was in the hyperacute ward for three days and they moved me to my local hospital here in London, to Homerton. And then I ended up being in Homerton for exactly two weeks. I was working a lot on my right arm to get it back. So I was able to eat and everything and I could talk and it's extremely motivated to do the physio, even though it hurt like crazy because, all you know, the muscles are knocked out. You're trying to do things that are, just seem impossible and cruel. My sister was able to fly over from Australia. She was able to get time off work and because she was able to come here, they decided that they could let me home early, kind of fast track me out after two weeks and then send physiotherapists and whatever type of therapist you need, speech therapists, psychotherapists or analysts and just general helpers to come every day and get you to you know, do your exercises, OTs as well, occupational therapists. So I think five days a week I had somebody, at least one person coming in every day and then I had my sister sort of helping me the rest of the time. So, yeah, I didn't end up being in hospital for that long. The care I got in the hospital and the six weeks of care, so it was only six weeks afterwards, was fantastic. But then I got ended up on one of those horrific waiting lists for the ACRT, the community rehab team, and that's based on your goals and what you want to do. And so my goals were getting back to work, getting off and on public transport and riding my <laughs> riding a bike again. Quite ambitious, I think. But there was at least a, an eight-week waiting list from the end of the care I got when I came out of hospital and then that care starting. My sister had to go back to work in Australia, so I asked them what I should do and they said, well, you just have to do things on your own <laughs> while you wait. And I'm like, oh. In the end, what we, we sort of took it into our own hands. I went back to Australia. I found people who could stay in my flat and I went back home. So my stroke happened in November. This was now the end of January. Nothing worse than being inside in like January, February, March when it's cold and it's quite hard to motivate yourself. So I decided that the sunshine and summer of Australia was far more appealing way of trying to continue rehab. So I actually ended up leaving and I was gone from London for nearly two years, really. I could access a little bit of care there. I had to pay for it all. I think for me, it was just sort of being back with family and like old friends that was nice. And because I had people that were over here taking sort of care of my flat, I just decided to take advantage of that really. 
and I ended up joining quite a few pilot programs in Australia to do with dance and movement and the things like that that I, I would come across that were really helpful. I just I tried everything. Basically, I just went back and tried all the things I loved doing. That would be my advice. Anything that you really enjoyed doing, they call it muscle memory or neuro memory, whatever it is, seems to help. So I was trying dance classes eventually, you know, and pottery. Anything that required coordination and it would be utterly exhausting and I would almost fall asleep while, you know, pass out whilst doing it because you just feel suddenly so tired. But I always took that as a good sign that, you know, the brain was actively rewiring and then the second time you'd go and try to do that thing, it was a little bit easier and a little bit less exhausting. And, you know, so you just push through that way. Another reason why I ended up staying away was I got offered, again, random, serendipitous opportunity, a chance to do some work in Singapore. They had accommodation there that had, you know, a gym and a pool and all these things are just right there. So that was me trying to get my independence back as well, I think. You know, that I got a little bit of that love of travelling whilst doing it in a very safe and calm way. After her stroke, Vanessa found she really had to slow down her lifestyle. A lot of really just sort of doing nothing and trying to sleep a lot, which was quite challenging for me because you feel better as you start to feel better. You want to try to do the things you used to do again and then you go and try them and realise that actually sitting in a, even just sitting in a cafe with your friends trying to have a conversation was enough for one day and then you might have to go home and sleep. (laughs) I missed my flat because actually I bought my flat in 2015 so I'd only had it for about a year when this happened. I'd built my life here, partly again that independence. Yeah, I've only been back here about a year now. I just wanted to come back to my home and my environment and and see how I could pick up from where I left off whilst knowing that it's not possible to pick up from where you left off but you know just doing things a little bit differently. The whole time I was away I was either staying with my sister or staying with my parents or staying in this accommodation in in, in Singapore where I had absolutely no responsibilities. (laughs) You know, I wasn't, I didn't have to really do much shopping. I didn't have to pay bills, you know, all of that stuff. So that the idea of managing a household really was a little bit daunting. But I do have quite a few friends who live near me here. Some people have a hard time adjusting to the changes because they're all invisible and people can't really see it. So they see you looking and sounding like yourself and then they forget that you can't do certain things anymore. I had them near me and I also made some promises to them because I live on a three-floor walk-up, which was great for physio, <laughs> but I also I think I mentioned like the loft and um, I made promises that I'd never go up there without taking my phone or without texting one of them before I do it, you know, people just trying to keep tabs on me a little bit, which I, I, I appreciate. But, yeah, I, I took it very slowly. Like I didn't work for the first few months that I came back. I was just sort of getting used to everything again. And although she's recovered well, Vanessa continues to encounter difficulties in everyday life. I would say that the biggest challenge, and I think after three years of actively been working at this, is to try to bring back multitasking versus single tasking. I think that was the hardest thing for me. And not that multi, you know, multitasking, we're all told it's not, it's not good for you, but, but just the ability to be able to remember lists and retain things in your mind. And that was really difficult for me, partly also because I'm renowned for my, was renowned for my memory. So if I was doing a task when I started working again and I got interrupted, I'd be completely lost. And what I noticed I ended up having was multiple documents open and multiple tabs because I was too scared to close anything because I'd lose my place. 
So I had to start to develop systems for myself of, you know, how I wrote things down and, and adding in preparation time and not relying on the fact that I could just stand up and think of something off the top of my head. If somebody asked me a question, I'd ask them to schedule time with me to ask me things or to try not to interrupt me if I had my headphones on and everybody was really supportive in that. So that was really difficult. And then just just the fatigue, again, of using your brain again and, and trying to rewire everything utterly utterly exhausting but again like it's like a muscle and I'm less tired now but I'd say only in the last few months that I've felt more like myself when I work a little bit more confident about what I'm doing and the fact that I'm not forgetting things it's almost like I've got these blank spots I think though even now some of my colleagues occasionally have to remind me of something that we discussed or did the minute they remind me I'm fine in my recovery. Actually, I ended up using a lot of metaphors. And one of my metaphors that I, I, I still keep saying to everybody and a lot of my friends is, it's like those old fashioned card catalogs in a library, you know, the wooden drawers with all the little cards in them. And it's as if somebody's come along and just thrown a bunch of drawers, emptied them out on the floor, and all the new memories are on a new card on the floor. And someone just has to help me find my way in to find that particular bit. And once I pull it out, I'm like, oh, yes, that's right. And then I can kind of file it away properly. Everything's in there. It's just not quite organised. <laughs> Vanessa's stroke forced her to change the way she lived her life and to relocate back to her home in Australia. Still to come on Stroke Stories, Vanessa on the invisible effects of her stroke. Sometimes I do have days where I'm just not good and there's times when I can't get words out properly because I'm tired or there's times if there's a speaker phone conference and I can't distinguish you know the voices from each other you need to know if I sound a bit vague or I forget something it's not because I'm not paying attention it's because I've had a stroke and this is one of the the after effects and the benefits of joining stroke support groups I found sharing stories with survivors through these Facebook groups was incredible. And then you find that you can help people that way too. And that's that feels really good when you can see somebody struggling as they post something about that and you're able to maybe inspire them by, by the way you got through it. Let's hear how Vanessa got involved with the Stroke Foundation in Australia. I met with them a couple of times. Again, it was I really wanted to do more, but it was about what I could manage to do. I did get some of their media notes. There was a Sydney Dance Company movement pilot program for people with mobility issues that I joined. That was an eight-week program, and the ABC News asked to interview. They wanted to come in and film the class, and they asked to interview one of the participants, and so that was me. So I, I contacted the Stroke Foundation as well just to ask them, you know, what should I say? What, what are the points that generally want people to stress? I did some fundraising as well through Stride for Stroke that they do. You just give yourself a, a goal about walking and people sponsor you. I definitely want to do more, and I've started to get involved here with different strokes. And research as well. I've been getting involved in any research that I think I can assist with. Vanessa's stroke remains a significant part of her life. I knew at the time, actually, I was incredibly lucky. So I didn't cry too much about it because I just went, it could have been, I knew, I knew it could have been so much worse. And I knew I was lucky. And so that's helped a lot. One of my friends who's a cancer survivor, and actually like I've found a lot of commonalities with people who've come through an experience like that she said to me it's going to become as much a part of you as your eye color you have to look hard 
when I'm walking to see it. But if, if you see me on stairs, they're my dead giveaway. I just don't have the control over my foot that I used to. And I have, it, it does limit my movement. I can't really push off it. I still have trouble cycling. If I have to run, it's my left leg's doing the majority of the work and I, I'm still actively working on my right side to strengthen it and to try to get my foot working properly. I notice that any time I try to do exercise, and I did a workout this morning and it was just so difficult. And I, I do this sort of exercise on purpose. It basically challenges all of the, the weaknesses and all of the continuing problems that I have. So I, I, I remember it then if I'm sitting down or talking to people or, or engaged, like completely engaged in what I'm doing, I don't think about it anymore. But it's taken, I'd say that that's only in the last few months that I've got to that point. Vanessa found that although her friends stuck close, it was sometimes difficult for them to understand the issues she continued to face. I think it's why I developed my battery of metaphors. Because <laughs> even when I was in hospital, people would come in and they would I'd just see relief would be the very first reaction because I didn't look like I'd had one. I, I didn't have, as I said, I, it didn't hit my face, which is what everybody's always looking for. And, um, and I could remove both my arms, even though one of them was a little restricted they would be relieved. And then because I could still talk and I still sounded exactly like me, they would just sort of treat me as normal. But what they had a really hard time understanding and even still because they think that I'm recovered and people say, yes, but you're 100%, not 100%. I put it at about 85. Is <laughs> the invisible stuff like the fatigue and the sensory overload that I still get. So if there's too much going on, if there's certain type of lights, if there's noise in the background, if too many people are talking at once. If people talk to me whilst we're walking down the street, I can never fully engage in the conversation because I'm too busy. Part of my brain is completely focusing on where I'm putting my feet so I don't trip over because my right foot needs a lot of attention still because I do tend to trip and scuff it. Those things are quite easy for them to forget the further away from the event we are, but they are very good. Like They'll check out venues before we go somewhere and then a lot of them can read my fatigue or my face to know that I've actually hit my wall or I'm getting close to it. But it's kind of been a two-way street, like training. Like I have to remember to tell people what it's like and what those triggers are and help them help me as well. With work, because I'm a contractor, it's been quite challenging because generally what I've had to do is not say anything, especially if I've not worked with them before, go in there, cover any symptoms, like walk as best as I can and, and, and then just, you know, come home after, you know, it was again, starting any type of new job is utterly exhausting and just sleep and then sleep all weekend as well. Like I just found it even just recently when I started another contract here in London, the first one I began in November, I was unbelievably tired pretty much every day and then I had to sleep all weekend. After I felt that they were appreciating what I was doing, then I'd let them know. And then the response there is, oh, we didn't think that there was anything wrong. It's like, no, no, no. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you so you understand because sometimes I do have days where I'm just not good and there's times when I can't get words out properly because I'm tired or there's times if there's a speaker phone conference and I can't distinguish you know, the voices from each other, you need to know if I sound a bit vague or I forget something, it's not because I'm not paying attention, it's because I've had a stroke and this is one of the the after effects. So I think they do their best, but it's quite weird if people haven't known me before, they can't see the difference. And, and yeah, it's quite strange. 
that there's now these people in my life who only know this version of me. <laughs> and Vanessa thinks perseverance is the key to recovery. Never, ever, 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 ever give up <laughs> and never stop trying and pushing because it, it's really challenging when your recovery plateaus, but it never plateaus forever. And sometimes it takes me a little while to realise that actually a movement has become a little bit easier and I've gained a little bit more control back. That, I think, is, is going to keep happening forever. So for me, I'm going to be recovering, but not in a bad way, like for possibly the rest of my life, who knows. But, yeah, it's that never giving up. And then definitely try old and new things. So go back to doing things that you always loved and activities. And, you know, you might have to plan them out very specifically and have people help you do them. But I think it's really important to re-engage with the things that gave you joy before and be accepting and forgiving of how you're able to do those now. That's challenging, but it's really important. Trying new things as well is really good. Just anything that, that gets your brain moving and shifting. And, um, you know, there are things like uh, learning languages and, and apparently playing musical instruments cross both hemispheres of the brain. And it's a really good thing to do. And even listening to music is a good thing to do. And I just try to move my affected parts of my body to, to music in any way I could as part of the recovery. Talk to people about it. I think that um, a lot of us end up hiding. I feel like we all just sort of disappear and retreat from the world when it happens. And um, I took a very long time to tell people about what had happened to me because I felt this sense of there might be judgment. People might assume things about what that meant. So I think talking to people about it is really important and about your story and what happened to you and stressing the fact that no two are the same and then there's definitely life afterwards and joining groups through social media or getting involved locally if there is a local group near you like Different Strokes. I found sharing stories with survivors through these Facebook groups was incredible and then you find that you can help people that way too and that's that feels really good when you can see somebody struggling and if they post something about that and you're able to maybe inspire them by by the way you got through it or your coping mechanism so that definitely get try to get involved if, if you can but when you're ready again like there's no timeline there's no right way of doing it there's no wrong way of doing it just keep going although vanessa's life was turned upside down by her stroke she was able to access excellent support from her local care team and also from her family back in australia she's now back in the uk and back to work. Coming up on the next episode of Stroke Stories. I was in a wheelchair, getting pushed around as I once, and this woman walked into us, and she went, why don't you watch where you're going? I went, I'd love to. Please do subscribe to our podcast and rate and comment on the episodes to help us spread the word. And if you are or you know of a stroke survivor and you have a story to share, please get in touch via Twitter or Instagram. Our DMs are always open. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening.